Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your truth, and we thank you that we've just got to celebrate it in song, and we thank you that we get to hear it now from your word. And Lord, I'm, I'm asking for your help. Lord, none of us is sufficient, none of us is enough for uh, the task of, of proclaiming your truth and for the task of, of even receiving it and hearing it and responding to it. We need you. So Lord, would you please help? Would you help us to see? Would you answer that prayer from Ephesians, Lord, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to see the hope to which you've called us? Father, I'm asking that, that you, O oh Lord, by your Spirit, would shine in, in our hearts with the light of your truth today. And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please go ahead and have a seat. Tim, I turned off the bass app. You'll need to turn that on again. The hissing was distracting. All right. Well, we're in week two of First Peter, and uh, and we're looking at three verses. And Josh Bondock's preaching next week. He'll be looking at verses six and seven. And uh, I'm, we may continue to just read some of the passages to just see how they all fit together. Even though we can only look at small sections at a time, uh, actually in, in the original language, verses 3 to 12 are, are one big sentence. This all fits together. And so we got to see that. I have flown a few times, and I expect the same is true for many of you, and, and I love the experience of taking off. I love the experience of seeing the earth get smaller below us, but my favorite experience is, is flying when it's cloudy or stormy. Have any of you, I wonder if any of you have been able to do that, and, and I know there's a pilot in the room here who's smiling at me, because that's probably not his favorite experience, but I love flying airline when you got low clouds, and that moment when you break through, and it gets sunny all of a sudden, and you realize that from 30,000 feet, that storm is not actually all that big. There's things that are far more real and permanent than the weather, like the sun. That's always shining. When we say, oh, the sun's not shining today, it is. We just can't see it. On top of the clouds, the sun is always shining, the song my mom used to sing us when we were, when we were young. And when we get up above the storm, we get perspective on what's actually real and what's actually permanent. Today's passage is kind of like taking a plane above the clouds. Peter was writing to Christians who were suffering, going through some really hard times. They were in some storms. And those storms might have felt like everything to them. But with Peter's words, he wants them to lift them above the clouds and to see what's really going on and what's really going to last. Now, I don't know to what extent some of you here might be suffering today. But I suspect, and as we're going to see towards the end, I think we could all use a dose or two of Peter's perspective. So we're going to jump in here to verse 3. Verse 1 and 2 is the greeting to Peter's readers that we looked at last week. And with verse 3, the actual letter begins. And what do we find the first thing out of Peter's mouth is? What's the first thing he says? He writes to this group of hurting Christians. 
It's an expression of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God is a typical Jewish expression that was used, we see it in the Old Testament, in Jewish literature all over the place. Blessed be God. And it's a statement there that God is worthy to be praised. Uh, God is worthy to have good things spoken about him. God's worthy to be praised. And, and Peter's not the only New Testament writer, Paul does it in Ephesians, that takes this Jewish expression of praise, blessed be God, and makes it thoroughly Christ-centered. Blessed be what God? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that we're not just praising a, a, and we're not just serving a generic God. We praise, we worship, we serve a very specific God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his identity. And it's it's in the work of saving us through Jesus that we actually see just how worthy God is to be praised. And there's a whole sermon in there on on Jesus' statement that those who do not know me do not know the Father, right? You cannot know God apart from Jesus because God is not just a generic creator. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ that we find the reasons for worshiping him. Now that word, the word reasons there is on purpose because what Peter does here is just like what Paul does in Ephesians, it's just like what the authors of the Psalms do all the time, is they state that God is to be praised and then they tell us why. Praise God and then here's the reasons. And that's what, what, what Peter does here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Here's why. And immediately Peter begins to share reasons for why God is to be praised, why his name is to be blessed. And the main reason here, the main reason in Peter's mind for why God should be praised is that he's caused us to be born again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's why that, that song we just sang was so great as, as, as setting up the message, as it, as it led us to, 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 to consider and, and, to, and to actually praise God. We got started on this already. Praising God for giving us new life. God should be praised because he's given us new spiritual life. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We know from Ephesians 2, apart from, apart from being born again, we're dead in sins. We're enslaved to Adam's legacy. We're in Adam. And we don't just need a second chance. We need to be spirit, spiritually reborn to a completely new life. We need to be called out of the grave like Lazarus was, was called out of his grave. And, and the thing about being born again is that just like being born for the first time, there's nothing you can do to make it happen. Some of us have maybe heard about that that woman who launched a lawsuit against her parents for bringing her into the world without her consent. You can't make this stuff up. This is real. She's suing her parents because they didn't ask her before they gave her life. Neither did any of us, right? And that's, that's kind of the whole point. None of us made ourselves be born. 
Our fathers gave us life, our mothers nurtured that life and brought us forth into the world and we lived. And and so it, it is with being born again. It's not something that we make happen. It's something our heavenly father causes to happen, right? James 1.18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. John 1.13, the children of God, quote, were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're gonna see this again further down in 1 Peter 1. And so what Peter is saying is we need to praise God because he has caused us to be born again. He made it happen. He's given us new spiritual life. Now, why would God do that? Why would God give us new life? Peter tells us at the beginning of of this phrase that it happened according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Now, according to, it's one of those phrases that shows up all the time in the Bible. It's not one we use in modern language. Maybe we should. According to, it means something like in keeping with. In keeping with his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. Mercy is one of the main ways that the Greek Old Testament translates that wonderful word for steadfast love. Remember in the Psalms just recently, we, we, we heard a lot about steadfast love, God's never-ending, covenant-keeping, undeserved love that just keeps pouring out grace long after we've stopped deserving it. Remember David, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Right, what did David deserve? Judgment. But because God, because you are full of steadfast love, would you please have mercy on me? In the Greek Old Testament, that that word for steadfast love gets translated mercy. God causes us to be born again according to his great mercy, according to his steadfast love. So in other words, this had nothing to do with what we deserve. This had everything to do with God's loving initiative. God, the initiative taker, who saw us, had mercy on us, and caused us to be born again, just because that's who he is. That's just who he is. Now, there's a second question that we could ask, not just why, but how. How did God cause us to be born again? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And if you skip ahead a few words, we see the words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you see that at the end of verse three, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has caused us to be born again. He's given us new spiritual life, a a brand new life, through the resurrection of Jesus. This is an idea that, that doesn't show up just here, shows up a few times in Paul's writings, and it tells us that when someone is born again, when they are made alive spiritually, what's happening is they have been made alive with the resurrection life of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5 says, but God, being rich in mercy, there it is again, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's actually so cool, and I'm not preaching on Ephesians here, but, but that word alive together with puts these things, and it's, it's a word that, that Paul actually invented. It does not, doesn't get used anywhere else, but it describes the fact that when we are born again, when we are given new spiritual life, we are made alive together with Christ. Colossians 2, 12 to 13, you were raised, you were also raised with him. So Jesus gets raised from the dead, and when we're born again, it's because we are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So I was thinking this week, how do we wrap our heads around this idea of being made alive together with Christ, of being born again through the resurrection of Jesus? I thought about some of the CPR courses that I've taken, and I've never had to use it in real life, but we practiced on the plastic dummies. And the idea behind CPR is that if someone's heart has stopped beating and their lungs have stopped breathing, that you beat their heart for them and you breathe into their lungs for them. So it is literally your life keeping them alive. Your life making them alive. And that's maybe just the tiniest little picture, just the tiniest little picture of the far greater way in which when we are born again, it's because the life of Jesus has flowed into us and has made us alive. Maybe the better picture is just the one that Jesus himself gave when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. You cut a branch off a tree, it dies. It's got no life in itself. But you hook that branch up to a vine and the life of the vine flows through the branch and makes it alive. And, and that's what it's like to be born again. We are alive with the very resurrection life of Jesus born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I hope you're beginning to see why Peter says, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're beginning to taste that God deserves to be worshipped. God needs to be worshipped for this. Peter's not done yet. What Peter turns his attention to next is, is not just um, why God caused us to be born again, or how God caused us to be born again. But now, what has God caused us to be born again to? If you think about the first time you were born, you were born to something, like a family, or a hospital room, or wherever it was. You were born into a certain situation. You were born into a certain set of expectations on your life, whether you were born into the royal family or born into a, a normal family, there's a certain set of, of, of circumstances that go along with our lives. We were born to something. When we are born again, what are we born into? Well, according to verse 3, we're born again to a hope that is living. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope. 
Hope is one of the greatest treasures of those who've been born again. Before Christ, we had no hope. Right? Ephesians 2.12, without God, without hope. Now, the people in the ancient world, in the Roman world, they actually understood this a little bit better than us. See, it, they were far more realistic. Like the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, way more realistic than us. They knew that this life was a small sliver of painful existence in between a painful birth and a certain death. And it took all the effort you had to stay alive for as long as you could. Right? The ancient people didn't put a lot of stock in hope. And neither would we if we uh, lived back then. And if we literally would say, if I die before I wake and mean it, because we didn't have Tylenol and 911 and life insurance and, and all, like just, there, there was very, very, very little hope. Now modern people are more likely to talk about hope. But, it, but if you dig down beneath the surface, what you find is that the hope that modern people have apart from Christ is, is, is just wishful thinking, right? Just think about if, if what we were taught in school was true, then you and I are just big accidents, fancy accidents, but accidents nonetheless, that happen to be born in a massive universe that doesn't care about us and won't miss us when we're gone. And we wonder why so many people today struggle with hope and with joy. We spend a few decades trying to make some money and enjoy the weekends, maybe retire early so we can, you know, spend a little bit of time and then we're gone. The hope that this world would have is just, is just a facade, right? There's nothing really there. I have a, someone who's very close to me who does not believe that there is a God and they, they, they go through life doing their best to look happy and positive. But during a really honest conversation, they said to me, you know, sometimes when I really think about it all, I feel hopeless. And I think that was probably one of the most honest things they'd said to me. But when we're born again, our new spiritual eyes flutter open for the first time. Right? One of the first experiences we have, one of the first breaths of air that a born-again person experiences is the clear air of hope. Right? Remember Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, Paul prays that we might, quote, know what is the hope to which he has called you. That calling, when, when God calls us to himself, he's calling us to hope Ephesians 4.4, 4, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Romans 8.24, we were saved in hope. And here, 1 Peter says, we were born again to a living hope. Do you see here that, that this hope that, that, that he's talking about here, that's why the, the specific words are so important. Born again to or into a living hope. It's not that we're born again and oh, by the way, I, I got some hope now. No, no, we were born again into this living hope. It's one of the main things that we were saved into and not just any hope, but a living hope. A hope that's real and alive. A hope that endures. A hope that lasts. And so what this helps us see here is that 
Peter's not talking about the experience of feeling hopeful. He's not just saying we were born again and now we've kind of got this sense of expectation. That's not what this means. The word hope here is talking about something that we hope in. That's our hope and it's alive. And we were born again to, yes, to experience hope, but in a hope, something that we really have a concrete expectation for. And what Peter starts doing in verse four is explaining to us what is this hope that we were born again into. And he uses three phrases to describe it. The first one is living hope. There's a second phrase that he uses in verse four when he says, to an inheritance. To a living hope, to an inheritance. Those, those statements go, go, go right beside each other. They're not two separate ideas. It's like if I said on Friday, I took my wife out to a nice restaurant, to a birthday supper, which I did, by the way. It was really great. But those, those two statements are not talking about two different things. Like we went to a nice restaurant and then afterwards we went to a birthday supper. No, it's we went to a restaurant, to a birthday supper. Same here, we're born to a living hope, to an inheritance, same, same thing. Our living hope is the inheritance that God has given us. It's, we should notice the theme of fatherhood here, right? Our father, has caused us to be born again. That's what fathers do. And in the ancient world, fathers provided an inheritance for their children. Now their economy was totally different than ours. They needed that. The land was very limited and it got passed down from generation to generation. And you needed that inheritance to, to, to even make it. In the Old Testament, inheritance is connected to the promised land that God gave to Israel, which they inherited and passed along through their family lines. And in the New Covenant, God has given his children an inheritance. And think of it, it's a living hope because it, it stays, it endures, it lasts. What, so, so our inheritance, what, what, what Peter goes on to say here is that it is totally safe. Nobody can take it away or wreck it or destroy it. So verse four says this inheritance is three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One writer said it this way, the inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It can't be killed. It can't be stained. It can't be changed. And this adds up to this idea that this inheritance that God's given us is totally safe. Totally safe. No one can touch it. No one can take it away. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Here's one of the places where, where we really can see that, that Peter spent time with Jesus, who spoke about treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Most of us have had possessions ruined by rust, stolen by thieves. Maybe we've had investments go poof when the stock market swings. 
I mean, that's what happens to stuff here on Earth. I remember when, when, when my bike got stolen from me once in Regina, I felt so ripped off and almost kind of like upset that God let that happen. And then, then Jesus's words came to mind. Don't store up treasures on Earth where thieves break in and steal. That kind of thing happens down here. Think about the Jewish people who'd had their inheritance taken away from them, their land invaded, occupied. Peter's readers may have been forced out of their home city lost everything in the process, but God, as a good father, provides for us a living hope, which is an inheritance that can't be ruined, can't be taken away, can't be stolen, kept safe in heaven for us to receive. Now you might still be wondering, okay, it's a living hope, it's inheritance, but but what is it? Like, what is this thing that, that he's talking about? And the final phrase in verse five describes it. We need to jump ahead to this phrase in verse five that says, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the third phrase. A living hope, a totally safe inheritance, and a salvation that's ready to be revealed. This is what our hope and what our inheritance is, a salvation that's ready to be revealed. And maybe there's a question there. I, I thought we were saved already. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Like, I am saved. What do you mean salvation ready to be revealed? The answer to that is that we've got to remember this tension in the New Testament between already but not yet. If you know Jesus, you are already saved and if you know Jesus, you are not yet saved. You have received some parts of your, of, of your salvation, but not all of it. We know it was finished on the cross like we sung today. We've been forgiven. We've been rescued from God's wrath. We're counted righteous in Jesus. We're adopted into his family. We're filled with the spirit. We're being taught by God how to live to please him. He's protecting us from our enemies, filled us with his spirit. Those are things we've enjoyed already. But there's other aspects of our salvation that we do not yet have. Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, that, that phrase is so important in, in an agricultural community, we get it. You take that first uh, harvest off the garden or the first apple off the tree or the first bushel of wheat off the field. That's all we've got. What you have right now is just the first little bit, the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You've got a new heart, but you don't have the resurrection body yet that he's promised you. You already have the Holy Spirit, but you're still waiting to live with God fully and finally on the new creation that he's promised us. We're still waiting for Revelation 21. We're still waiting for him to make all things new. So already, but not yet, We've been saved, we've got the down payment, but we're not yet saved. 
I just, I just want to remind us here that I think so much of our life and our experience makes sense if we remember that we've not yet been fully saved. I mean, we're being saved and it will happen. But this full and final salvation is ready to be revealed. Jesus has bought and paid for it. There's nothing more he needs to do to make it happen. It's ready to be revealed, but we don't have it yet. It's being kept in heaven for us. This is our inheritance. New bodies on a new earth, dwelling with God, a new creation. That's our full salvation. That's our inheritance. That's our living hope. And we're still waiting for it. I wonder if there's still some tension here though as we think about just how safe this is. Our inheritance is being kept safe in heaven. Nothing can wreck it or ruin it or take it away from us. Eternal reward, future glory, yep, that's, that's safe, we get that. But what about us? If, if you were on your way to the bank to collect some inheritance money, and you had an enemy that wanted to stop that from happening, there's two things he could do. One is he could rob the bank and take that money away. Or two, he could stop you from ever getting to the bank. Satan knows that he's not going to be able to break into heaven and, and ruin our salvation. So guess who he goes after? Chapter 5 of 1 Peter, we're going to read, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Satan can't attack our inheritance, so he attacks us. Satan can't take our inheritance away from us, so he tries to take us away from our inheritance. And so, if God is a good father who makes sure that we get our inheritance, he needs to do more than keep it safe. He needs to keep us safe. And that's why verse 5 is so precious that our inheritance is kept in heaven for you, quote, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's not just keeping your inheritance safe. God is keeping you safe. Guard, who by God's power are being guarded. That word speaks of like a military sentinel watching over us, guarding, protecting us, a, a, a security detachment from the most powerful person in the universe. And how does it work? How, how does God's power guard us? Well, what's it say? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. <laughs> Peter's Letter is just loaded with all these little phrases and we got to understand them. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith? What does it look like for God's power to guard us? It looks like faith. That's how God works to sustain us. That's how God works to protect us. That's how God works to keep us. He keeps and protects and sustains our faith. He protects us through faith. And in faith, we press on to receive our inheritance. And God gets us there by sustaining our faith. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast, as we've been singing together. And we just want to think about this for a moment. 
because to, to piece this together, to just to see how this really just comes out of, of this verse and the whole story of the Bible, think about how from the beginning of time, Satan works against our faith. What did he do in the garden? Did God really say? Satan plants doubts. Satan loves to make us cynical. Satan loves to make us think we're smarter than you know Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And Satan works to make us doubt. He works to destroy our faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, we looked at this in sun, adult Sunday school today. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you see that? P Paul's concerned for their faith because he's worried that Satan will have attacked that faith. And so that's why time and time again, scripture tells us to resist the devil through faith. We're gonna see it in chapter five, verse nine. Resist him firm in your faith. Ephesians 6, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. That's how we persevere. When Satan comes at us, we persevere in faith. Hebrews 10.39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And how many of us can say, I can do that? How many of us can honestly say, my faith is so strong, you know, Satan can throw whatever he wants at me. He can, he can just totally, you know, throw all the forces of hell at me, and I, I trust God, so I'll be fine. I don't think any of us honestly could say that. I think we know that our faith, if it's just up to us, is so weak. It flops around in a day sometimes between strong and weak. If it's just up to our faith, and our faith alone and our own strength to keep our faith going, we're lost. And that's why verse five is so precious because God's power guards us through faith, which means that our faith isn't our own business. God is working to strengthen and sustain our faith. God helps us to believe so that we persevere to the end. We remember that faith itself is a gift from God, right? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this, all of it, including faith, is it not your own doing, it is a gift from God. And here we see that God's power is guarding us through faith, which means that God is empowering us to believe in him from one moment to the next. In the moment, it doesn't always feel like that. In the moment, it can feel like we're just working hard to believe and not fall away. But from heaven's perspective, one day we're gonna see that God has been persevering, sorry, preserving our faith. I heard a story once, I believe it's a true story. I tried to find it on the internet yesterday and I couldn't. It was about a boy who had a, an accident and it, and it wrecked his eyes, he couldn't see anymore. And for weeks, maybe months, he lay in bed, completely depressed, unable to do anything because it felt like his life was over. And one day his, his dad walked into his bedroom and said, son, get up. I got a list of chores that you need to do today. And he gave him a list of chores all around the house, some of them outside. One of them was washing the outside windows. 
And his son's like, dad, are you, are you kidding? Like, I'm blind, I can't do this. And he said, son, you need to do this. So slowly but surely, the son got out of bed. He felt his way around the house. He got the ladder, stretched. Imagine doing all of this without being able to see. Stretched it out, found where the, where the windows were, climbed up, did his best, and went through his whole day doing what felt like pretty dangerous stuff. But his dad said to do it, so he did it. And at the end of the day, he heard his dad's voice. And that's when he realized his dad had been behind him the whole day. Keeping him safe. Steadying the ladder. Ready to catch him if he fell. The same dad who told him to go get this stuff done guarded and protected him as he did it. And one day you and I are going to see that our experience is, is so much the same. Here we're down here on earth. We're underneath the storm clouds. We, God tells us to do stuff and we are obeying and we're trying and we're trying to believe. And one day we're going to see that our good shepherd was never far. That we were being guarded by his power. That our ability even to believe in him from one day to the next was something that he was empowering. That he was sustaining. And that's why when we get to heaven, we're not going to say, yay me. We're going to say, worthy is the lamb. Praise to you, God. We're going to throw our crowns down because he is the one who kept us from stumbling. So how do you and I respond to all this? That's a tough question because we just cut Peter off mid-sentence. In the original language, verses 3 to 12, one sentence. And in the weeks ahead, Peter himself is, is going to guide us into showing, okay, what, what do we do with this? But I think even at, even at now, even at this point right now, I think, I think we can stop and look for a couple of, of main ways that we, we can respond to apply this truth. And the first has to do with perspective. Peter's words are designed to shape our perspective, to shape the way that we think about what's real and what's true. They give us an, a narrative for understanding our life. Think about what Peter wants us to see. Think about the narrative Peter wants us to, to see ourselves in. Being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on our way to an inheritance, guarded and protected by a father. Think of how different that is from the narrative that our world tells us and wants us to believe, which is work for the weekend, retire as early as you can, and spend as much time on yourself as possible. And that's why false teachers like Joel Osteen do so well, because everybody wants their best life now. And if Jesus helps us get it, well, sure, I'll try Jesus. Why not? A ticket to the show. And then along comes Peter and the rest of the Bible to tell us a different story. It's actually about our best life later. It's actually about our best life later. Your best life now is a cemetery, a spiritual cemetery where the dead gather 
because that's all they've got. But Christ has raised us from the graveyard to new life and a future that can't be taken away from us. Don't miss the whole future orientation of this passage. It's all future. Look what's coming, look what's coming, because right now, for Peter's readers, and right now, for a lot of us, is hard. It's what's coming. And so one of the ways we apply this passage is just to, just to ask God, Lord, would you help us to believe this and would you, would you use this truth to just shape our perspective, to remind us our present is often very hard and our future is very bright. See, this passage is like the plane that takes us above the clouds to see what's real. I want that perspective. I, I, know, I don't know about you, I know gravity pulls my perspective down. I know this morning I can say, yeah, that's true, I believe it, and I just need to get a, a flyer in the mailbox tomorrow with some cool stuff that I want, and all of a sudden I'm back to storing up treasures on earth mode. Ooh, that looks nice. So quickly. So, I can tell you something I did this week. I have little uh, three by five cards that I, I just keep track of the things that I wanna pray for. And, and there's, there's a couple that I, I want to pray through every day. And, and just on, on one of them, I just wrote, Lord, help me to have an eternal view. Help me just to, to think. Help me to maintain this eternal perspective of, of my best life later. You could try something like that. You could maybe take these verses we've looked at and put them on a sticky note. Maybe stick it on the dash of your car or your bathroom mirror or a place. And, and read those words. Ask God to help you maintain this perspective to really understand who you are, a child of the Father, born again to a living hope, on your way to a great inheritance, kept safe until then. Ask God to help shape your perspective. Perspective. And there's a second and it's praise. I was talking to um, one of the other preachers around here about how sometimes at this point in the message saying, well, we should praise God for this. It can feel like a bit of a, of, of a cop-out because it's so obvious, but it's actually just really, really true. And, and here's this, the whole thing is that's how Peter introduces this passage. This whole passage is introduced with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a test of how much this shapes our perspective. Do you hear everything we've heard this morning and go, yeah, I believe that, that's true? Or is there something in your heart that says, are you kidding me? And maybe you don't use those words, but there's something in your heart that says like, me born again to a living hope, like all this stuff we've seen, an inheritance kept in heaven, God is keeping me, really? Praise God. Is there something in you that wants to praise? That's the real test of, of how, how, how deeply this truth has sunk into us. Because when these truths shape our perspective, we want to worship this God who's been so kind to us at a scale so large. And so that's what we're going to do here in a couple moments. We're going to praise God with a song, and that's on purpose. And this song asks God to help us keep on praising him. And I, and I think praise is one of those things that helps keep our plane above the clouds as we remember to thank and praise God for how eternally, cosmically kind he's been to us. So if you know the Lord, seek his perspective 
and respond with praise. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, or if you're listening and you don't know the Lord, you don't have to wait around to f- have some bolt from the sky hit you. If you find yourself believing what you read here, that could very well be the voice of the Lord calling you to himself. So just come to Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Come with an open heart and an open hand. And if you want to know more about what that actually looks like, get in touch with me or one of the elders here or a Christian friend that you trust. For all of us, let this truth shape our perspective and make us respond in praise. Heavenly Father, I'm asking you to help that to happen. Lord, what else can we say but blessed be you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, according to your great mercy, to an inheritance. And you're keeping us safe through faith until that day when we get it. Lord, we can't wait for that day. We thank you. You're keeping your children until then. And God, Please help us to see the world, to see our lives, to see each other in this way. And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll take just a moment here to reflect and pray, and then the team is going to come, and we're going to ask God to tune up our hearts, to keep on singing his praise for his great mercy.